Spark said that the other thing that he needed to share with you was the fact that he started smoking and drinking over the holidays <laughs> so that the next time he has a heart attack, he'll have that to give up. <laughs> There's nothing worse than having a heart attack and say, well, you need to do you smoke, do you drink, do you eat this way, do you, do you not exercise? Well, I don't smoke, I don't drink, I don't eat fatty foods, I exercise every day, and they look at you and say, well, then you're in big trouble. <laughs> Speaking of heart attacks, Hey, have you ever had such a simple New Year that you could rejoice in the simplest things of life? I mean, when people say, did you have a happy New Year? Hey, I got up and took a shower. <laughs> that was great. I mean, think about it. You know, things that we took for granted for years. It's like, you know, you're waiting. It's like, wow, praise the Lord. We've got running water. We've got electricity. I mean, you know, it takes that to help us appreciate the things that we take for granted every day. And so if that's not a reason to praise God, I don't know what is. And uh so, um, fortunately, we didn't have to deal with some of the things that um, some of us uh, were concerned about. But, speaking of heart attacks, a uh, nice segue. Do you like that? That was pretty smooth, wasn't it? New Year and everything. A uh, middle-aged woman had a heart attack, was taken to the hospital. While she was on the operating table, she had a near-death experience. And seeing God, she asked him if this was it. And he said, no. He said, you have another 40 years, two months and eight days to live. So upon recovery, the woman decided to stay in the hospital, have a facelift, some liposuction, a little breast augmentation, a tummy tuck. She had her hairdresser come, change the color of her hair before she was released from the hospital. She figured since she had such a long life ahead of her that she might as well make the most of it. So as they check out of the hospital, she's crossing the street, and as she's crossing the street, she was hit by an ambulance and killed instantly. As she's standing before God, she said, Lord, what's up? That you, you told me I had 40 more years to live. I had a long life ahead of me. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't recognize you. <laughs> See, what makes that so funny is, is that we know that's not possible, right? I mean, what's the point? The point is this. Some things are a little harder to recognize than others, and that's certainly true of our ongoing study of God's love. You know, we've learned to date that, that what the world calls love, God says, is nothing, often nothing more than an excuse for sexual immorality, for selfishness, for self-gratification, and even for the abuse of those around us. We live in a society that confuses acceptance and love. How many of you have heard the statement that people have made, well, you know, you know if you don't accept my behavior, regardless of what it is, if you don't accept my behavior, then you don't love me. Really? Is that our idea of love? And we confuse love and acceptance. Fortunately for us, God's not confused by any of our definitions of love. And uh, he recognizes people uh, for who they are, and he recognizes things for what they really are. And he's not confused by what we want things to be. Because, you see, God's not confused by our definition of love because we're not the ones who define love. Because God is love. And everything that he does is a result of who he is, the character that he is, and the character that is filled with love acts in such a way that we should easily recognize it. See, God's not confused by recognition, for he's the one that defines it. He's the one that determines it. God is love. And so as we consider that, if you recall the last time we were together, what's the chances since it was a century ago? Uh, a year ago is tough enough, but you know, a decade ago, a century ago, and I know those of you who are, are purists, we know it's not really a millennium ago, 
but uh, you wouldn't have known it on, on uh, Saturday, man, alive, or Friday evening. But anyway, the point is, is that we began to examine a biblical description of God's love. And if you recall, God's love is that supernatural or spiritual love that's available to all those who have come into a right relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin, for the um, exclusion from God's wrath and judgment, for those who are recipients of eternal life. You know, I saw a few football games yesterday, being New Year's. You know, not many, but just about eight. And, um, and I noticed that almost in every one of those games, there were John 3.16 banners that are hanging. You know, and it would just be a fascinating thing to see if people, if that even piques the curiosity of those who see that sign to even begin to ask the question of one of the most simple and yet poignant verses in all of the Bible. And that is that God so loved this world that he gave us his only begotten son. Whosoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. See, you're on one of two roads. You're on the road that continues toward judgment and condemnation to perish, so to speak, from the standpoint of being judged for sin. And the only way that we can get off that path is by being intercepted, as uh, the Apostle Paul, who was known as Saul of Tarsus, was, when Jesus intercepted him on the road to Damascus and took him from the road of condemnation and destruction and perishing to a road of eternal life as he gave his life and his heart to Jesus Christ, believing upon him for the forgiveness of his sins. See, the Bible says he was taken from a road that was leading to, leading to death and destruction and eternal damnation. And that it turned him around 180 degree, degrees and sent him on a path that was, at that moment in time, he became a child of God to those who believe in his name. At that moment in time, that instant in time, if any man's in Christ, it's an instantaneous occurrence, it's a miracle of God. And turned him on the path of eternal life. And he was given eternal life at that moment in time. Yet to be realized at some date in the future fully. But we're given eternal life and abundant life and joy and peace. The Bible says that there is now no condemnation to those who are in Jesus Christ. And along with those benefits comes another benefit. In Romans 5, 5 specifically referring to believers, Christians. It says the love of God has been poured out through and in our hearts. The love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. This love of God's is only available to those who have trusted and believed in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. It's not something that we can generate on our own. Though people try to do that and they think that they know what love is, but until you know God, you don't know God's love. It's impossible because it's distributed by God as a gift from God to those who trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sin. That's why he's saying that love is poured out within our own hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The same truth continues in Galatians 5.22 when it says the fruit or the evidence of the Spirit's presence in the life of the believer is what? Is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And we'll see more of that as we look at the passage that we'll be studying in detail. And that is this passage that we'll be focusing on is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me. Because our attention throughout this remaining weeks of this series will be upon this particular passage. It's a first letter that the Apostle Paul wrote under the inspiration and guidance of the Holy Spirit to a group of Christians who are located at Corinth, which is a city just southwest of Athens, Greece. 
And in this particular passage, we notice that God has much to say about love. And in fact, we're going to see the necessity of God's love as is outlined for us in this particular passage. But if you've got your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Many of you who have been to weddings have probably seen or heard this read somewhere in the course of the wedding ceremony. Uh, sometimes it's used as a scripture reading. Sometimes it's used in the body or the contents of the message of the minister who presides over the particular ceremony. But many of us are familiar with the passage, and yet there is so much depth to this that I think oftentimes we just kind of buzz through it and don't appreciate it for what it really, what it really holds as far as truth. We read the words, If I speak with the tongue of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, is not jealous, love does not brag and is not arrogant, does not act unbecomingly, does not seek its own, is not provoked, does not take into account a wrong suffered, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never fails, but if there are gifts of prophecy, they will be done away. If there are tongues, they will cease. If there is knowledge, it will be done away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. When I was a child, I used to speak as a child, think as a child, reason as a child. When I became a man, I did away with childish things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as also I have been fully known. But now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. There is a lot of depth in this passage. And it's important specifically that we understand the context in which we find this passage. So oftentimes, and I think one of the saddest parts of Bible study if you even want to call it that, because I think it's a stretch to call it Bible study, if we don't study the passage in the context in which it was written. We see oftentimes people will pull something out of a passage or out of a chapter or out of a book, and then they'll put it all together and they'll try to make it say something that it was never intended to say by God. And so the passage is very critical in the context in which it was written. What was going on at the particular time to this particular group of people that was written to? Where is it found in the body of the letter in which it was written? What precedes it? What follows it? How does it all tie together? Because it helps us more fully appreciate and understand some of the problems that these people were dealing with and why God would go to such great lengths to give us the context and, and the depth of the passage that he does in the midst of what he was trying to, to tell them in other areas of life. In fact, if you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3, you're going to see that basically this sets the tone for the letter, but the letter helps us to understand that this group of believers, these Christians, were not a very mature group of people. In 1 Corinthians 3, starting with verse 1, it says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. 
He says, I gave you milk to drink, not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. Indeed, even now you're still not able, for you are still fleshly, the, the Bible says, or carnal, or you're still acting in a way as if somehow or another God hasn't changed your heart and he hasn't changed your life. He says, you're still fleshly, for since there's still jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly and are you not walking like mere men? Isn't that amazing? I mean, God doesn't hold back. In, in our politically correct culture, God would have a real problem, wouldn't he? And we notice that all around us because the word of God is profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for rebuke, for training in righteousness. I mean, God, oftentimes, as I'm reading through the Bible, man, I'm getting a good spanking from God. I don't know about you, but you start reading through it and you go, whoa, you know what? He's taking me out to the woodshed and he's whooping me good. Only because I deserve it. And I'm looking at it, and see, that's why it's a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. The Word of God's living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It's able to discern or cut through all the baloney of our life. And able to meet us right where we are. And God's saying, hey man, this is you. See, what Paul was saying to the Corinthians was, hey, I wanted to tell you some more things about God and get into deeper truths, but you haven't even began to apply the things that you've heard already, and i still got to talk to you as if you were a little baby. I want to teach you. I want to give you solid meat, but we still got to give you milk because you can't even handle the milk yet. The later, the, the uh, writer of the Hebrews said the same thing. said, man, I'd like to give you some deeper truths of God, but you can't handle it. You can't handle the truth. So we got to start with the beginning and, and go all through it. So it's real important that we understand that in the context in which we find 1 Corinthians 13, we find a rebuke to a group of people who continue to live their life as if they are in the world still. And what, and what the Bible means by in the world are people that, you know what, even though they've come to saving knowledge or they've come to trust in Jesus Christ, they believe that he died for their sins. They believe that, that he went to the cross in their place. They believe that he rose again from the dead and that he ascended into heaven and one day he'll come again in glory to judge the living and the dead. They believe all of that in their heart and yet they haven't assimilated it into how they live their life. Wow, can you believe there are Christians that are like that? That's so hard to believe. So I think about it. You know, if you've come into faith, if you've come into genuine faith in Jesus Christ, if old things have really passed away and all things become new, it should be easy to see that. It should be recognizable by those around you who knew you before and now know you now, what your life was like before you were in Christ, what your life is like since. It always amazes me when I hear people give testimony of how they came to trust in Jesus Christ and yet he hasn't done anything in their life. That's a scary thought. Because the Bible says to examine ourselves to see if we're really in the faith. From a scriptural standpoint and from an objective standard, we've got to look and see what God says a Christian really is. Regardless of what we think one is. I know that in my own life as I was confronted with, hey, when did you become a Christian? Uh, uh, well, I went to a big name brand church. I even was baptized. I was confirmed. I went through all the, uh, you know, the things that I was supposed to do. What do you mean, when did I become a Christian? A Christian is a person who believes in God. I've always been a Christian. No, not according to God's definition. See, we had a problem defining Christianity just like we have a problem defining love. 
and defining anything else that we want to define. God says, you're not the one who defines it. I'm the one who defines it. And by definition, a Christian is a person who has come to recognize that they are sinners before God. They are hopelessly lost. There is no hope for them. They are, indeed, as God says, condemned before God because they are sinners, which means they fall short of the standards that God has set, that God has set certain standards for living, and if you fall short of those standards, then you are a sinner by God's definition. If you've lied, if you've cheated, if you've stolen, regardless of how you rationalize and justify it, if God hasn't always been first in your life, if you've ever taken the Lord's name in vain, and those are just the top ten of 613. And the point of all of it is that none of us can live that way. So a Christian is a person who at one point recognizes that they are in deep trouble before God and they are on the road to condemnation and hell for eternity. And they cry out to God, forgive me for my sins, what must I do to be saved? You must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and on Him alone and God will save you from that ultimate fate of judgment. See, a Christian is a person by God's definition who is born again by the power of the Spirit of God coming upon them, the regeneration, Titus 3, 3 through 5, that we're born again not by any works of our own, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, but by the Holy Spirit of God who regenerates a dead person and brings them to life as Jesus rose to life after his death to signify that he had power to give life. See, we try to define everything in our own terms, but God says, I don't care what your definitions are. This is the one that counts. And so as we look at this, we begin to realize that these people, even though they've come to some knowledge, and even though they've come to faith in Jesus Christ, they haven't begun to understand that there is a new way to live. Galatians 5, Ephesians 4 says, walk in the newness of life. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Live a life that's now pleasing to God, not because that's how you're getting to heaven, but because that's how you respond to the grace that he's already given you and the regeneration of your life. Now walk as if you understand what he's saying. And that's what the word of God's all about. That's why we've got to study the Bible. Because I don't know how to live as a Christian without this. I don't know about you, but that's what frightens me about churches today. How can you be equipped to do the work of ministry? How can you be equipped to walk a life that's more pleasing to God? How can you know what the way and the manner of God is and how the life that he wants you to live if you're not exposed to God's truth? I don't know how to be a Christian. It was like when I gave my life to Jesus Christ, the only way I even knew how to do that was because somebody shared the word of God with me. And then once that took place, it's like, okay, now what? Hey, then get into the book. Here it is, rule book, guidelines, everything you need to know on how to walk and live as a believer. Problem, though, is that many of us don't read it. Hey, there's a good commitment for a new year, a new century, new decade, new millennium, whatever. It doesn't really matter because every day is a gift from God. This may be the only day that you have. You might as well start it on the right note. Read it. Lord, if there's any wicked way in me, if there's anything that needs changing, hey, show me in your word what it is. You pray that prayer, I guarantee you, start writing. Lord, show me. Show me. It's like, you don't have to show me. I already know when I ask you ahead of time. Because if you've come to know Christ, the Spirit of God lives within you, and he's telling you already. He's convicting you of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He's telling you, hey, what are you doing that for? You don't live that way anymore. You don't talk that way anymore. You don't do those things anymore. But see, the, the Corinthian church, they didn't get it yet. But that's what the Word of God was, to help them to live a life that was more pleasing to their God. So as we look at this, the context is real important. If you've got your Bibles, look and notice something that's taken place. What precedes 1 Corinthians 13 is a, is a, um, a discourse on spiritual gifts. 
many people don't know or understand, but the Word of God helps us to, and that's this. When you believe or put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit of God distributes as He wishes to all God's kids spiritual gift or gifts. And so their argument that was taking place, in fact, it was a major point of division in their life, was over these gifts that God was giving. They would see these gifts made manifest or openly visible to those around them, and they were arguing and, and, and they were divisive about the fact that, hey, I want that gift God's given. That's kind of like if you had a choice at Christmas time, and, and uh, you know, if you, any of you do those white elephant things this past Christmas where you, you, know, you bring a really cruddy gift, you just look for stuff around your house, and, and you go, wow, let's get rid of this now. This is a good excuse. Um, but you take it, and you take it to you know, a party, whatever, and you pass out a gift, and, and you can take that gift, or you can pass it on the next person until finally, and you always want to be, at the, you always be last. Um, but the, so you can decide which gift you want, right? Well, what happened was God distributes or gives gifts as he wishes and he desires and he chooses. And then all these people thought it was a white elephant thing where they could pick and choose which gift that they wanted. Oh, you have that gift. Well, I'm last in line. I'll take that one and you can take this one. I don't want this one. And they were, they were arguing and debating and fighting over which gifts were more important than the others. And as a result, who was more important than the rest of the people that were at the church? It was an amazing thing. And so as we look at this, that's what was going on that leads us into 1 Corinthians 13 and the debate over certain gifts that we see in 1 Corinthians 14 was the gifts of prophecy, and we'll talk about that in a minute, or the gifts of tongues, we'll talk about that in a minute because he uses it in the context to help us understand what God's love is all about. And so as it's sandwiched in between this, it helps us to better understand what it is that God wants us to recognize as far as love is concerned. See, notice what he says in 1 Corinthians 12, 31. Earnestly desire the greater gifts, and I show you still more an excellent way. A most excellent way to live. It's an exaggeration. It comes from a Greek word in the English, which is hyperbole, and it refers to overstating a point for emphasis. The way of God's love needs to be exaggerated for emphasis. And he's going to exaggerate it in the context so that we fully understand how important God's love is in the overall scope of living our lives. There is nothing, as we'll see, that is more important than God's love being at the center of everything that we say and everything that we do. And so that is the context that we're going to see as we're going through it. Now, if you've got a uh, pencil or a pen with you, we're going to divide it into three sections. 1 Corinthians 13 has three paragraphs. The first one is the first three verses. So if you've got a pen, you can just kind of underline after the third verse. That'll be the first section or first paragraph that we'll look at. And in this particular paragraph, it shows us that God's love is necessary for all that we say and do, and that without it, life becomes meaningless and empty and it doesn't make any sense. The second paragraph goes from verses 4 through 7. You can put a little bracket around it or whatever you'd like to do to understand the body of it better. But we're going to take a look at that. And it shows God's love is different from natural human responses. And we're going to look at that next time we get together. God's love, as you will see, is, is, is oh, supernaturally different than what our natural human response is or was. And when I read this, I go, whoa, that was my whole life before I came to know Christ. And God says, now you need to respond in a different way. And he enables us and empowers us to do that. Then the last paragraph is verses 8 through 13. And it just shows us that love is greater, uh, God's love is greater than spiritual gifts and greater than faith and even hope. So as we look at all this, we're going to see the necessity of God's love as it's revealed in 1 Corinthians 13. 
Now, for those of you who are really sharp and on top of things, you'll notice that um, the last time we were together, we went into great detail, so I'm just going to touch on it briefly, that without God's love, we see in verse uh, 1, that without God's love, our communication, God says, is ineffective. It says, if I speak with the tongues of men, and it's saying, if and if it was so, and in this particular case, it's not possible, but what he's pointing out for the, state, for the sake of exaggeration. Remember, everything here is going to be exaggerated to the extreme. So don't miss out on what the point is by getting hung up on the exaggeration. The exaggeration is there for the point of helping us to focus on the importance of God's love. He says, if, and even if I could... Speak in all the tongues of men. We learned that glossi, the Greek word, is where we get the English word glossary or a listing of words or an understanding of words. He's saying, even if I could speak in the tongue of every, every language known to man. Now, if you were watching any of your New Year's Day or New Year's Eve celebrations around the world, one of the things that really jumped out was, I think it was the fourth stop in an unlimited number of stops to celebrate um, the New Year around the world. Um, I think the first one was a little island, Millennium Island, which they renamed, uh, you know, for that particular purpose. Then the next one was in New Zealand. The next one was in Australia. And then the one that I happened to catch, because it was like actually like 7 or 8 in the morning uh, and not 2 in the morning, I wasn't that excited about all these stops, but um, was in Indonesia. And one of the graphics that they showed at the time was there's 14,000, I believe, islands in Indonesia. It's the fourth largest population in the world, uh, cumulatively. Uh, of all the islands put together, but there are 365 known languages and dialects in Indonesia alone. So it doesn't take the genius to figure out there's a whole bunch of languages in the world. And the point that God is making is this, and even if you were sharp enough to speak in every language of the world, wow, that would be impressive. He says, and even if you were sharp enough to speak in the language of angels, which we see in 2 Corinthians 12, there's a heavenly language that men were forbidden to utter. Paul was, was taken to the third heaven or the presence of God himself, heard a language that was spoken there that wasn't spoken anywhere else in the world as a heavenly language, and God forbid him from even sharing what that is, and the word of God doesn't give us any, any uh, insight into what that language is, and it really doesn't make any difference. And this is what I'm saying, don't get hung up on these things because the point isn't all the languages, and the point isn't the heavenly language, and the point isn't anything other than this, if I could speak with the tongues of men and angels but I don't have love I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal the point is very simple even if I could speak in all these languages and knew all of these languages if I don't have God's love dripping from every word that I say then I've become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal so as a challenge to each of us, including myself, we need to recognize what the Word of God says about speaking to one another. Ephesians 4.15 says, speak the truth in love. God doesn't want us to sacrifice truth on the altar of being politically correct, but He does want us to speak the truth when we speak it, to speak it in love. We need to learn how to do that better, don't you think? I mean, when, when, for example, when, when, when your wife, gentlemen, this is just for the fellows here, gentlemen, when your wife says to you, do I look good in this outfit? You have to stop and think before you answer. We don't want to sacrifice truth because if you don't like it, she may end up wearing it a lot if you tell her that you like it. Do you like my hairstyle? 
You know, and it's like, and it's hard to really speak the truth in love when she's shaking her head yes, and that's kind of conditioning your response. Do you like my new outfit? Do you like my new hairstyle? You know, do you? And it's like, you know, and you got to think because you're in trouble here. You know you're on dangerous, thin ice. And you've been there before and it breaks and you go down and you go down for a long time. <laughs> and she doesn't reach out to help you. You're on your own. But I'm going to throw something back to the ladies now. If you don't want to hear something other than what you want to hear, then tell us what to say. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because that's less than honest if you're not open to any response. But speak the truth in love, right? And so the question is, what do you say? Suggestion. Honey, the other outfit that you have, such and such, more genuinely captures your beauty and your radiance. More so than this one. Right? Ladies, help me out. I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm looking for help here. Wouldn't that be better though? Hey, did you like that? Yeah, you know, you know when you die, you just fall over and die right there and then. You know? But it's true, isn't it? I mean, isn't there ways to say things but to speak the truth in love? I think I've mentioned to you, when I was a little kid, my grandmother made a cherry pie. And, and I was being nice because she made a cherry pie. And I went, whoa, my favorite cherry pie. Forty-some years later, I'm forcing down cherry pies. I, it's like I can't stand cherry pie. It's disgusting. But she, every time, I made you your favorite. I lied to you. But I can't do that now. Forty years later, it's like it'd kill her. Forty years, and she's going, I hate making cherry pies. You know, we could be free from all this, but, but you know, at some point, someone's got to tell the truth, right? Speak the truth in love. Because if we don't speak the truth and we condition ourselves to just hear what we want to hear, then what kind of intimacy is involved in our relationships with one another? See, God has a lot to say about what we should say and not say and how we should say it. But to speak the truth in love, I mean, that's an amazing thing. The Bible says a lot about it. If you'll recall from our study in the book of James, you know, we learned that our tongues can either be a source of great blessing or a cursing in the lives of those around us. We can choose to build others up with our words or we can tear them down. You know, that's one of the, the reasons James warned believers to be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. The power of speech is a wonderful gift that God has given us. With our tongues, we can praise God. With our tongues, we can share the word of God. With our tongues, we can share the gospel of Jesus Christ and the only hope for man. But with our tongues, we can say things that destroy one another and scar one another and maim one another. Words that we can think back in our childhood or think back even in our earlier years of our marriage. And words that are there, they echo throughout the, the memory banks of our minds. And they rattle our brains and, and they're, they're destructive and they're harmful. We know sticks and stones may break my bones and words can never hurt me. That's not true. Sticks and stones may break your bones and you can easily mend from that in a year or two years or whatever, but you know what? Words can scar people for life. We need to recognize that, you know, I love the story that I heard about a woman who had a problem with gossip. And uh, she was, she'd hang on the phone, she'd share with anybody that would listen to anything she'd have to say. And finally, as she's reading through the Word of God, she was convicted. She was reading through Romans 12 and she was convicted about this problem of gossip in her life. And she was reading, you know, where it says, I urge you, therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is a reasonable spirit, service of worship. And don't be conformed to this world, but transformed. And she was convicted, went to her pastor and said, Pastor, you know, I've got to do something about this problem of gossip. He said, well, what do you want to do? 
She said, I want to lay my tongue on the altar. And he knew this lady, and he knew the problem that she had, and he knew that she continued to say these things, that she was so sorry, blah, blah, blah. Every time she got in the jam, it's a problem, I've got to do something about it. And she said, I want to lay it on the altar. And he looked at her and said, lady, we don't have an altar that long. <laughs> and this letter, think about it for a while. You know, we need to recognize and understand, I guess as I'm challenged to consider this, what area of communication, in which area of communication do you struggle is it the sin of gossip? Is it the sin of slander? How about blaming others for the decisions that you choose to make? Exaggeration? Lying? Vengeful words? Angry words? Cursing? Swearing? Coarse jesting, the Bible calls, or dirty jokes? stories. You see, all of those are destructive. And I'm going to challenge you as I challenge myself as we move into a new year and wanting to live in a manner that's more worthy of our calling. To take the heart and to memorize a key verse that's found in Ephesians chapter 4. Because it shows a contrast between what it be, a contrast of what it's like to not be a Christian and live our lives and what it should be like as a believer and live our lives. Galatians, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, we read this powerful command. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment that it may give grace to those who hear it. Let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. The word unwholesome means decayed, rotten, or diseased. It's used of rotten fruit. It's used of rotting fish. What a great word picture that is. Let no rotten fish or fruit come out of your mouth. When I was a kid, my grandparents, great-grandparents, used to make homemade wine. And they make homemade spaghetti sauce. And they make homemade stuff, right? And they had a tomato garden out in the back. And, and the tomatoes sometimes would rot, or the birds would get them, or they'd fall on the ground or whatever, and they'd just be just horrendous. And they threw them up against the back wall that they had. They threw them over the wall, and that's where they made their compost for future gardens. And every now and then we'd be playing wiffle ball out there and sometimes we'd hit them. That's where the home run was and the good news, bad news. You hit one long, the bad news. Now you had to go up into that mess and get the ball. So you go up into this thing and you just smell this rotten, horrific smell of rotting tomatoes. And when it was hot and humid back in Pennsylvania, man, it could get ripe. And I don't even know why they call it ripe because if it was ripe, it wouldn't smell. It was like more than ripe. It was rotting. And it stunk. And to me, it's a great word picture that God wants me never to forget. Do you remember how that used to stink? Yes, Lord. Words smell when they come out of your mouth. They're rotten words. Let no unwholesome or rotten, stinking, diseased, degenerated words, putrid, offensive, useless, worthless, come out of your mouth. But what? But only those that are good for edification for building other people up, 
Not for tearing them down, but for building them up. What do others hear when you open your mouth? Do they hear a noisy gong? Do they smell rotten words? Are they irritated by the things that you say? And they're at the point where they can't even stand being around you. Then you, my friend, and I have a problem before God. We need to confess that sin. A noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. A clanging cymbal based on the Greek words were used for crying or weeping loudly over the dead. It was a word picture that the readers and the listeners to this passage would, would know very clearly. It was a word picture for weeping loudly over the dead. Somehow, that's what our words sound like when we try to communicate to others without love. It causes grief and it causes sadness. Ask yourself the tough questions. That's what we're to examine ourselves. Are we contentious? Are we argumentative? Do we lie? Are we vengeful? Do angry words come out of our mouth? Do we think before we speak? Is what I'm about to say going to build this person up or tear them down? Is what I'm about to say a good reflection of my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as one of His people? Or when people look at me and they listen to me, they go, wow, I heard the guy's a Christian. Or that woman's a Christian, but, but, but I, I don't understand then what Christianity is all about. God forgive us. Because we know better. Because the word clearly tells us to let no unwholesome word proceed out of your mouth. But only such a word that is edifying or building up. Said at the need of, in the moment of the person that needs to hear this needs to hear something that will build them up at that point and not destroy them. See, without God's love, we have ineffective communication. The second thing is, without God's love, we have incomplete understanding. Back to 1 Corinthians 13, look at verse 2. He says, and if, I have the gift of prophecy. For those who don't understand or aren't sure what the gift of prophecy is, the Bible refers to the gift of prophecy. as the, In fact, here in 2 Peter 1, 19-21, it says, We also have the prophetic word made sure. What you do well to heed is a light that shines in a dark place until the, dawn, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of men, but holy men of God, as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The gift of prophecy is more than just foretelling an event before that it happens, though that's part of it. The gift of prophecy, according to the Word of God, is declaring before an assembly of people the truth of God. So he's saying, even if I had the gift of prophecy, which was declaring before a large assembly of people the truth of God as God has revealed it to the person speaking through his word, and oftentimes the gift of prophecy, if you think about it, if, if the truth is declared, then it can foretell things that happen before they happen because the truth of the matter is that I can declare according to the word of God, if any man's in Christ, he's a new creature. That when we're absent from the body, if you've come to faith in Christ, you'll be present with the Lord. Now, that hasn't occurred in our lives here. At least it doesn't look like it yet for most of us. Some are questionable. We might have to nudge the guy next to you there. Uh, but uh, just in case, he may have left us and is in the presence of God. But, but the point is this. 
that that is an event that takes place in the future. Just as so many things that God tells us will be events that take place in the future, we can foretell those events, but it's declaring the truth before an assembly. He's saying, and if I have the gift of prophecy, and notice this, and know what? All mysteries. A mystery in the, in the Word of God, by definition, is simply something that God had not revealed up to a certain point, and then he reveals it. For example, in the Old Testament, it is very hard to find any evidence of, quote, the church, or that God's program would be extended beyond the Jewish people. But the church, or the mystery that is now revealed, is because the Jews rejected Jesus Christ, he came unto his own, and his own did not receive him, that God used the Gentile world to make the Jews jealous, that God now has extended his grace and forgiveness to all who receive him. Whosoever will may come, the Bible says. And so God, up to that point in time, had not revealed this mystery. It was unknown, but now it's revealed. We know because the Word of God reveals that Ephesians 5 is a great chapter on that, talking about the mystery of the church, but now it's revealed. So he's saying that even if you knew everything that God has yet to even reveal, he says, and if I have all knowledge, and knowledge is a good thing, but it's talking about everything that God wants us to know. Even if you could know everything that God wants us to know that's even possible for us to know. And all you got to do is read in the book of Job where Job begins to be asked questions by God, a series of questions that, you know, confound Job to the point he says, man, I'm really stupid. Sometimes I question you and I think, I, you know, maybe I shouldn't and I'm going to just start, you know, some of us are like that, aren't we? God, why do you do this? Why do you do that? Why aren't you doing it this way? Why don't you do it that way? And to Job, he said, hey, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Where were you when I hung the stars in the space? Where were you when I set the seasons? Where were you when I did this, that, and the other thing? And he kept going on. It was like, okay. At the end of all, he said, you know, I got a good idea in the future. I'm not going to ask you anything other than the questions that I want you to tell me so that I can understand more of who you are. But I will never question you because the Bible says it's like the potter being questioned by the pot. When was the last time you walked through your house and you saw a vase? That's if you bought it at Kmart. Or a vase, if you got, you know, paid something a lot more money for it. But, uh, you know, that's the difference between a vase and a vase. That's just the way it is. But when was the last time you ever heard something sitting there saying, hey, I don't like the way I was made? Duh. It doesn't happen. But we do that all the time with God. He says, hey, I made you. And you go, duh, why? Why'd you do that? He says, you know what? Stop asking me the stupid questions. And if you'll start to listen more, I'll teach you. So the point is, he said, even if you knew all that stuff, and notice this, and even if I have all faith, there's a gift of faith that he says that you could even move mountains. If you had the faith of a mustard seed, Jesus told his disciples at one point, he says if you had a faith of a mustard seed, the smallest seed known, he said even if you had that amount of faith, you could tell that mountain to go from here to there. If you could even do that. Now, the point of exaggeration is to help us understand the importance of what he's about to say. If you knew all mysteries, if you had the gift of prophecy, if you had all knowledge that there was to have, and if you had all faith as to even remove mountains, but you don't have love, you're nothing. Why? Because no one will care what you know until they know how much you care. God isn't placing a premium on ignorance. So some of us go, oh, all I've got to do is have love, and then I don't have to worry about studying the Bible. No. 
We are commanded to meditate on the Word of God, to study the Word of God, to dig into the Word of God so that God can reveal more and more of Himself and His character and how He wants us to live. We're commanded to do that. So ignorance is not an option. You can't check that box. But never misunderstand the fact that it doesn't matter how much you know if you don't express what you know and dripped in the language of God's love, people won't care what you have to say. Some of the most brilliant minds in the world have zero influence on the lives of people around them. And you know why? Because people around them know they don't care about them, and all they care about is sharing how much they know. And there is nothing that will gag you quicker than that. You know, Ph.D., piled higher and deeper if it's not dripped in God's love. You know what I'm saying? And that's not putting a premium on ignorance and don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But the bottom line is this. It doesn't matter how much you know until people know how much you care. And the last thing is insufficient giving. Insufficient giving. I love what God has to say as we look at this particular passage because he says in verse 3, And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor. Can you imagine that? If I give all my possessions to feed the poor. Certainly then God will take note, right? That's what we think. That's the culture in which we live. And I'm going to blow you away if you turn back to Luke chapter 21 and I'm reading this looking at it going, wow, you know what? God doesn't do things like we do things. God doesn't see things like we see things. He just doesn't recognize things the way we do. In Luke chapter 21, he straightens this out real quick with the whole idea of sacrificial giving. This is philanthropy, you know, philanthropy where we're just, you know, God just nails the wisdom of the world and says, you better rethink what you do and why you do it. Because if you think I'm taking note, you've got it all wrong. Luke chapter 19, I mean, I'm sorry, Luke chapter 21, look at verse 1. It says, and he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury. He was at the temple, he looked up and he saw the rich people coming, they were putting their gifts into the treasury. And there's a contrast that takes place here between, you know, the plural or the multitudes of those who come that were rich and he saw a certain, one certain poor widow putting in two small copper coins. Singular. There's a group of wealthy people and they're putting in a ton of stuff. And then there's the one lady who comes and he uses her to contrast his truth from man's truth. God's wisdom from the wisdom of the world. And if you would have stopped and asked the question right now, which one did God note more? The wisdom of the world, just like in the book of James we learned, the wisdom of the world or the recognition of man tends to look at those who give more. What seems like they're giving more. Oh, well, obviously if you gave $10,000 and she's only given $2, then God would notice the $10,000 because it's more. But see, that's not how God's economy works. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow put in more than all of them combined. Can you imagine? They had to just be going, what? How? All of them combined? He says, for they all out of their surplus put in their offering. But she out of her poverty put in all that she had to live on. You notice that? 
Isn't it amazing that, you know, as you look at the, 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 uh, the seemingly insignificant gift of a poor widow who put in a couple of, of coins compared to all that the wealthy were bringing to distribute and to give, that the bottom line is that, you know, the, the widow's might doesn't represent the least that we can give, but the most. If you stop and think about it, it, it it's the, the most that we can give. When it comes to giving, God sees more than the portion that we give, but he sees the proportion in which we give. God's not hung up on the quantity, but what he is concerned about is the quality, the motivation. See, the world that we live in, and we just come out of, you know, Christmas. And man, I'll tell you what, if you're like us, you got a million phone calls and letters, and man, everybody wants something, right? And they're all preying upon the fact that most people give 70% of what they give during the year in the month of December. And so they're fighting to get that dollar because there are people who are motivated to give only at that time of year because whatever reason they are motivated to do it, uh, you know, the spirit of giving is upon them. They're feeling a little more generous at that particular time of the year and they're motivated to do so. But you see, what God says is if you're motivated to do so, so that you will be recognized by others for your gift, if you're motivated to do so because then you'll feel better about yourself, that's why you give, then God says, hey, you know what? You can give everything that you have and it will profit you nothing. The world is convinced that if they do enough good things that somehow or another God will let them into heaven. What they don't understand is the ability to even give what they have is given to them by God anyway. What do they have that wasn't given to them by God? And they, people say, but I worked hard. Yeah, and who gave you the ability to work? Who gave you the brain to think, to invent, to create? Who gave you the desire, the health to be able to do those things so that you can accumulate stuff? Who do you think you owe everything to but not God? So what God's saying is, you can't buy your way into heaven. Why? God doesn't need our money. He's not broke. And the reason he's not broke is, he owns it all. <laughs> it's all his. Read the book. Everything is his. So what he's saying is, even if you would, and there aren't very many people that do, because most of us give out of our portion, and we don't look at the proportion, but the bottom line is this. I don't know too many people who this time of year or any time of year give everything away. I know we don't, and I got a pretty good sneaking suspicion that you don't either. But even if you could give away everything that you own, without God's love, there is no profit. There is no profit. It does not follow that the more we give away, the more we shall love God, but rather the more we love God, the more we shall be willing to give away. What we do is always the result of what we are. To give because we believe that in this way we shall enjoy more of God's blessings and God himself is loveless charity. And there is a lot of false heretical teaching that goes on today saying the more you give to God, the more he owes you. We owe him everything. And even what we give back to him is what he has given to us. 
to turn back. You see, if you could give it all away, if you think that's what's going to buy you favor with God, you need to recognize and understand something. The only way that we find favor with God is believing what He accomplished through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on our behalf. It is by God's grace that we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so none of us can ever boast. There will never be anyone in heaven who bought their way into the presence of God. Jesus Christ bought our entrance into heaven and Him alone. See, God's, God's economy is not like the world's. If you've got enough money in this world, you can get pretty much anything you want. You can buy your way into the best medical facilities. You can buy your way into the best educational facilities. You can buy uh, relatives and family members, even jobs in certain companies. Uh, you can buy pretty much anything that the world has to offer. You can buy political offices. I mean, because if you raise enough money and if you're on the news enough and if you get enough media attention, hey, you know what? You got 70, 80, 90 million dollars to throw on a campaign. Guess what? You can pretty much buy a political office. But you cannot buy. You cannot buy entrance into the kingdom of God. You cannot buy forgiveness from God. Lord, how much will it take? From you, nothing. What Jesus did, did says it all. If you will believe that, and you will accept that, and you will confess your sin, and you will accept Him into your life on a personal basis, not believing in your head only, but believing in your head what He did, and accepting Him into your heart, then guess what? Then you shall be forgiven. You shall be saved. And so this whole idea of God's love, God's love as we've come to know Christ, should motivate us to give to those around us because just as we have freely received, certainly freely we shall give to those around us. That our finances that God has given us as stewards is one of the greatest accesses that we have into the lives of other people for the purpose of sharing with them the reality of the gift of God, that God gives as far as the gospel is concerned and eternal life that is free. When you give to a person that can't give back to you, they look at you like, okay, what's the catch? There is no catch. Well, what do I owe you? You can't pay me. You don't have any way to pay me. Well, then why did you do it? Because God did the same for me, and he does the same for you when he sent Jesus Christ to die for you. If you believe him and you accept him and receive him as your Savior, then you will find that you'll become a child of God. And there's nothing you can do other than simple trust of faith. Isn't that a wonderful truth? That's like, I mean, it's so exciting. See, because without God's love, we have ineffective communication, we have incomplete understanding, and we have insufficient giving. You know, and I can't think of a better time of year than as we start out fresh, so to speak, that we would start out and we would recognize the importance of God's love at the center of all that we do. Augustine said this in closing, what does love look like, he was asked. He says, love has the hands to help others. It has the feet to hasten to the poor and needy. It has eyes to see misery and want. It has the ears to hear the sighs and sorrows of men. That is what love looks like. And to that I'd like to add this, that God's love has the lips to speak the truth in love and encourage those around us with words that build up and do not destroy. Can you make that commitment to do the same in your life? To be quick to hear, to be slow to speak, and to be slow to anger.
And when we finally choose the words that we want to share with those around us, may we have run them across the desk of God to get His approval before we say what's about to come out of our mouth. Because we don't want any unwholesome word to proceed from our mouth, but only a word such as edifying or building up for the need of the moment to the person who is about to hear what you're about to say. May you be gracious in what you say to those around you. And I guarantee you that once we are gracious to them and they know how much we love them and care for them, then they will want to know how much we know about the God that we serve. Father, we just thank you. We look forward to this study as we go through 1 Corinthians 13. And just the depth that's there, the description that you give us and all of the depth and truth that's in there. God, we just pray that we can uh, become people who share and communicate with one another in a loving spirit, in a loving manner. That all the words that we say are a reflection of your grace in our life. That others, as they hear us speak, they'll be um, more drawn to listen to what we have to say because they know how much we care. God, we just thank you for this gift to be able to communicate with one another. May we never take it for granted. And may we always communicate words that build up and not destroy. And we just thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, next time, next week, um, we're going to take a look at that next paragraph in 1 Corinthians 13 and look at how our response to others isn't <laughs> the natural response, but we need supernatural help to do what God wants us to do.